for this month's Healing 101, we will be marking Women's Mental Health Month by speaking to some incredible female therapists in various different medical fields to give all of you listeners an insight into the wide array of help there is out there. Hopefully these conversations will encourage women to consider the factors that influence their mental health and how they might be able to make some lasting positive changes. You might also learn some valuable health tips along the way. On today's Healing 101, I am joined by Ariadne Calvero-Platero, the founding partner at Family Central Consultants, which helps families through difficult transitions. They provide support and advice to families at a critical juncture when facing medical, mental health or major life transitions. They also collaborate with families to develop a plan of action and to provide ongoing support. Their mission is to minimise stress and anxieties for families faced with daunting or unfamiliar challenges. Can I start by asking you why families need therapy when someone in the family is suffering? One of the reasons that I myself ended up as a family therapist as my specialisation is that what I would see over and again is that when one person in the family is struggling, that it really does impact the whole family. And what we've often seen in the past is that a family has a sort of identified patient of, you know, child or somebody in the family who they consider to be, you know, the one with kind of quote unquote with the problem. And traditionally there's been a, an intent to sort of send that particular individual for therapy. And then they come back, they work, even if they work with a very good clinician and even if they themselves are really engaging in in very good therapy and some kind of transformation, in the end, that tends to be one day a week and one hour of that one day. And what they're returning to for the other six days and 23 hours is the same family and the same family dynamics. And that's not to say that the family is, you know, is in any way the kind of the, the quote unquote bad guy here. But if the individual is going to try and change, they really need support from everyone, if it's a child, uh, from their parents, from their siblings, to change so that when they come back and they're trying to enact some of the new tools they've got or some of the new strategies they have, that there are people who are not then just behaving in the same old ways that then triggers them back into the initial behavior or the initial response or the initial mental health distress. Instead, you have the whole family really trying to help that individual change. And sometimes, of course, it's not really just a single individual. You know, there is just a family dynamic that, with all the best will in the world, has just developed within a family, partly because of past experiences, maybe parents' own childhood experiences, maybe trauma that the family's been exposed to. And sometimes even trying to do the right thing, a family can end up ingraining behaviors and ingraining interactions that just are not beneficial for everybody over the long run. So when my experience, when a whole family comes in and you really try and get as many people as you can, as many members of the family in, but you don't have to. Um, There are certain practitioners who won't work with a family unless everybody turns up. And there are others, and I'm part of the others, who believe that you can do family therapy even with a single person. Because I think once you change one input into a family system and into a family structure, it in some way will impact change in everybody. Yeah, it's really interesting because I've had a lot of therapy with my mum, but 
the rest of the family haven't really engaged in it and it is interesting when someone starts to change you're right it does change the whole dynamic of the family yeah but we're often sort of you know the instinct is to have everybody stay the same even if objectively we could agree that certain behavior or a way of being is something that we want to change there is just a sort of an instinct to pull everybody back to the status quo and you know there is no such thing as status stasis in a family it does change but there will be some people who are more open to that and others who are really quite rigid and want to kind of keep it the same because somehow in their mind that is that is a good thing. And I think that we have to recognize that things change and people change. Often people will laugh and so say, you know, they'll go back for a holiday, you know, whether it's Christmas or whatever it is, and suddenly they'll revert to their 13-year-old self. Well, that's not by chance. I mean, we all have the similar experience in that there's roles that we play in a family. And I think for a family to get an opportunity to review that is actually a great advantage for any family, but particularly a family that's struggling or has an individual who's struggling in it. It's a really important moment to be able to step back and really look at that question of what roles do we play and how do we particularly interact? Is there one person who particularly is supportive of me? Is there a go-to? How do we as a family deal with secrets? How do we as a family deal with transgressions? How do we as a family deal with good news? I mean, it doesn't all have to be around trauma. It can be also around very positive things. But noticing how you as a family behave around certain things is often a key to, well, okay, what of that do we actually like and do we want to do more of? And what of that would we like to do differently? And in which case, how do we do it differently? When do we do it differently? And how do we do more of that? And it's really about taking the time and asking the questions. It's in many cases, it's not rocket science. It's really about stepping back, taking the moment to ask the questions in as undefensive a uh, way as possible and really kind of brainstorm around how you change that if you see a dynamic that you don't like. And how can therapy really help a family move forward when, or should I say, support someone who's suffering or struggling with something? I think predominantly it's about understanding. I think the first issue is to help them understand what the individual who's sort of quote-unquote the identified patient is is going through. Education is really helpful in just understanding also wiring, what contributes to it, that uh, we sort of take the moral judgment out of these things. Very often there's a sense uh, when people don't really understand a mental health issue, there's a little bit of, well, if they just tried harder, they would be able to fix it or they would be able to sort of, you know, if they pulled their finger out, it would all, it would all be fine. And I think understanding that that is not the case in many cases is very valuable. I think the other piece that is also very helpful is actually some shining a light and some focus on the members of the family who are not uh, the one that that everything is maybe being focused on uh, in that moment. And I think that very often siblings will behave in a way that is not healthy for them and not healthy for the family as a whole in reaction to the fact that someone else is really sort of absorbing all the family attention and concern and, you know, maybe very rightly needing to be the center of attention. It's often very important that they are, but it's somehow we need to make sure that we're also letting the others express themselves and understanding the kind of attention that would be helpful for them as well. And very often I'll see in a family where if one is struggling, it could be a physical health issue, a mental health issue, or learning disabilities. It could be any any diagnosis. But often you'll hear parents will say, oh, well, you know, 
X is the one we're concerned about and Y and Z are just perfect. Everything's going well. Everything's going fabulously. And that's immediately puts my, uh, you know, a flag up for me in that probably those other children take a view that they can't step out of line. The children are naturally in some ways very sort of protective of their parents. And it's like, there's a, even a subconscious idea that, you know, I can't even make a squeak because, you know, the system will break and I need to just be the perfect child here because we're concentrating on something else. And in the long run, that doesn't serve that, that sibling well either. And the v- virtue of family therapy is really what you're trying to do is get all this information out into uh, the open and to understand what triangles there may be, um, the way that uh, there are secondary benefits to some of the behaviors. And it's really about letting the family look at it themselves. They are the expert on themselves, but often they're so deeply mired in an emotional turmoil over an illness or over um, an issue that it's very hard for them to, to step back and see it. And so I think a family therapist's position is not to be the expert on that family, but it's to allow and help that family, to facilitate that family, really understand what it does know about itself and really start identifying what it sees as healthy and and the less healthy behaviors. Going back to the point that you made earlier about some members of a family being absent when it comes to therapy and not being prepared to take part in the whole therapeutic process, I'm wondering whether that can actually work long term if you have, say, a sibling who's absolutely horrible to the person who's suffering and they won't engage in the therapy. And then you have two parents who are, you know, doing their best to support the person who's struggling. In that instance, if the, as it were, the person who is, you know, as we say, the diagnosed one, what advice would you give to the parents in that instance? What I would say is you you start at the beginning, which is really trying to share information. When I see one family member being very alienated or maybe being very judgmental, I think it tends to be covering up pain and a lack of connection or a fear of a lack of connection. I just feel it's very much something to do with their inner workings and what's going on for them emotionally, what makes it hard for them to see what's going on from a place of compassion, what makes it hard for them to maybe understand that they can live their life, but in reflection and and along with what is going on with, with their sibling. So I would say advice to parents in that circumstances, they need to sit in a place of compassion. They need to, if possible, really understand why it's so difficult for that sibling to kind of engage with the fact that the whole family needs to be included in the work and be included in the kind of almost assessment of what you can shift and what you can change and how we can navigate a plan forward. I would always encourage parents to really work on an, a separate connection with you know, both children, that not to sacrifice one to the other. There's usually a lack, something that that sibling that doesn't want to engage or is very blaming of the the other sibling, the one that has a, a diagnosis, so we're getting very puzzled in our in our descriptions. But <laughs> I think that it's really important to just keep the connection going. You know, humans are wired to connect. I think it's incredibly important that we sort of go in and just sit with and just say, "I just want to understand." 
very often as parents, you know, we're inclined to tell children what to do. And, and you know, when we see them doing something we don't think is, is good for them or good for their, you know, their brothers or sisters, we're sort of like, no, but you must do this. Well, yes and no. I mean, it's very hard at a certain point. You can't force a child to behave in a certain way. So really the, the key is to sit down and understand that you want to create a family unity, but you also do need to have these separate relationships and really kind of understand what it is that maybe needs to be built up so that the one who's been more recalcitrant and, and less able to engage feels that they are more able to engage. And, you know, I think a lot of it is fear. A lot of it is fear of the of, of what they don't understand. Fear is the unknown. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, of jealousy within families when you see attention very much given to one over another. And we're differently able to deal with those things depending on our wiring, but also depending on what kind of a stage we're in in life. I mean, is everything else going well? Is, is it going well at school and with our friends? In which case, we're probably more resilient to struggles at home. If everything's really difficult everywhere and you know, you're not doing well at school and suddenly your best friend's gone off with someone else, it's almost unbearable when, when the family isn't a safe place to be or isn't an, uh, you know, an easy place to be. So I think there's a lot that's going on. I think it's what makes family dynamics and family therapy, for me, just such an interesting and exhilarating field to be working in. Every family is different. Every dynamic is different. But it, it, it is really about staying in there and keeping the connection. As long as you've got a connection, you can make shifts. And it has to be said, there are some people who really have very little empathy, really have very little compassion, really have very little capacity for that. I think it's been shown by the studies that it can always be increased and families can really work on that. But if there really is someone who is is very harsh within a family, I think a lot of what we then talk about is what are good boundaries? Uh, how do you keep the person within the fold but not expose yourself daily to the harsh reactions of that person? And that's always a delicate place. I mean, you you know, family, you know, we all have an idea of how we'd like um, our family to be very kind of positive and a safe place to be. But sometimes I think we also do have to have what I call healthy boundaries within uh, members of the family when you've really tried everything and there's just a, a mismatch. Um, and how do you keep a connection which is positive, but not reach for something that just isn't possible, possibly at that time? Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. It's really interesting talking to you because I think with family therapy, it's such a delicate specialization because it's you're dealing with not only the person who is the quote unquote patient and their feelings and their sort of almost resentment towards the sort of quote unquote healthy members of the family because they're the one that's sort of been landed with this sort of illness and this pain that they have to endure every day and all they want from my own experience is for everyone to understand what they're going through and the fact that it's really like a mind lock. But equally from the family's perspective, it's a real challenge to put themselves in the shoes of the person suffering and to not just look at them and think, why can't you just pull yourself together and just like pull yourself out of this hole? 
And so developing that understanding on both parts, you know, there's got to be sympathy from an empathy and understanding and also an element of education. So one thing I am quite interested in asking you is how you give families the tools to sustain as it were, the level of dialogue, the communication, the healthier habits, because particularly when you're dealing with older people whose habits are much more ingrained and their way of being is, you know, just slightly more set in stone. What advice do you give them to be able to keep up the healthier patterns? What I'll often talk to families about is, you know, who is it who supports you in these things? Who is it who's a good tag team for you? I think that we, none of us are very good about keeping on with something relentlessly when we get no feedback, we get no encouragement, we don't get any glimmer of a change. So I think there are two ways that you need to look at this. And one is you really need to look internally as to who do I want to be? Who do I want to be as a sister? Do I want to be that person who hasn't given up on the relationship with my brother? Do I want to be that person who will look back and say, well, I always kept the door open. I reached out when I could. You know, sometimes I couldn't, sometimes I was overwhelmed, sometimes you know, I wasn't able to, but when I could, I did. And I didn't let the kind of anger stand between me and what I would like to have had in my relationship. So it's really about looking internally and working out who do you want to be. And then when you have actions or things that you're going to be doing, you're thinking in your head, does this fit in with the larger goal of who I want to be? And I think we all have this sort of sense of, or we should do, we need to stop and think about and create this sense of who it is that we want to be. And sometimes we do it by seeing other people who are like, I love the way they dealt with that issue with such, you know, common sense or such grace or such kind of kindness to everybody around them. We're not always our best selves, but it's very good to have a sense and an idea of what it is that we'd like to be and who it is that we'd like to be. So that's one. And then the second is you need your team, you need your people. And who are the people within the family, but also who are the people who are out of the family? I often like to do sometimes with kids is we do a bullseye and and we start with in the center and that's where the, the very close family is. And then we do a ring around it. And who's in the ring around? Well, there's sort of aunts and there's uncles or there may be godparents or there may be family friends. There may be you know a vicar, there may be a teacher. And then you go in a, another circle around who's in that. Well, there's a soccer team and there's my teammates and there's the coach. And then there's, you know, my friend so-and-so's family who I've always been sort of quite close to. So you get this sense of there being a larger community around you. It's not just this intense kernel of this nuclear family that may be struggling or has a sort of Gordian knot in its relationship. How do you loosen that? And sometimes you loosen that by getting the support from elsewhere. And so when, you know, you share your goal that I want to be the the sibling who has stayed in touch. I want to be a sister who is open to when my brother may be able to connect back with me. And you share that with, maybe it's your mother, maybe it's your aunt, maybe it's a, a family friend, maybe it's just a good friend of yours. And that's your go-to person. You, you, know, you say, can I check in with you when I'm flagging? And they'll, they'll be there to remind you about what it is that you wanted to do and why it is that you're going to send that, even though you keep getting this resounding nothing back and you're feeling, oh, what's the point? They're going to be the ones who say, well, it's about who you are as well as about whether you hear back from your brother. And I think that those are things we can be to each other. It's not, oh, well, you're the one that needs help. You're going to do the same for that friend, that family friend, or a different person in your set of circles for something that they need support with. I think we need to be much more using our we know both strong connections, but also the sort of 
lesser connections that we have and bind that in. I think when you find somebody who's had a similar experience, you find somebody who's had something where they've gone through something where it resonates with them, what you're going through, you become each other's tag team. That's the person you go to where I'm flagging on this. Well, remember that this is what you wanted to do, that once a month you wanted to make sure you were reaching out or sending a card and it was going to be regardless of whether you heard back from them. Okay, you're right. I'll do mine if you do yours. So I think it's really about getting support. It's very hard to do it just on our own and in a vacuum. Some people are extremely strong and able to do that, but I think most of us need support. And it's about clarifying those goals, having a sense of who you are, who you want to be, sharing that with somebody who is sort of part of your team, and then you using them and them using you in a tag team kind of a way and in a support when things are flagging. And I'd be really keen to just hear what you think about parents and when they start to blame themselves and they see a child who keeps relapsing or who keeps reverting back to the same you know patterns or they're struggling and really in a hole and they've tried everything they feel they've exhausted every option and their marriage is in disrepair they themselves are kind of totally depleted because you know there's a saying that a mother is only as well as her most unwell child and in those instances what advice would you give to parents in crisis I think that as parents, we're, we're so quick to blame ourselves. And it's true, we, ha- we do have a lot of influence on our children. And obviously, we impact a great deal the environment they're in. But they are also born with certain wiring. Uh, there are circumstances which families find themselves in, which are you know, no one's particularly responsible for. And even when as parents, you know, we are responsible for things. You know, we messed up, but we look back and say, gosh, I would have done that so differently if I had that over again. That's the nature of being human. That's the nature of being in a family. We don't get it right all the time. So in those cases, I think there's a lot about the importance of exercising compassion for self. I know that there's a lot of buzzwords of being grateful and self-compassion, but it's because they're real. They really are important. And there's a combination of both being the parents themselves being very educated and reminding themselves that there are many things that are outside their control, that there were many things that took on a life of, of their own. And even if it was something that they may have felt they contributed to in a certain way by not responding early enough or not responding well enough, I think there's not a parent in the world who, if they're properly self-reflective, doesn't have that feeling about some things to do with their children. I think there's an, a lot of work in making sure that we're not looking back except as it serves to look forward. You know, if I can learn from something that I failed to do last time and make sure that the next time I'm likely to do it better or I've, I've got a better chance of, of understanding what some of the, some of the issues that I maybe wasn't aware of at the time then that becomes something that's useful. Otherwise, I very often try and encourage parents to spend less time looking back and sort of flagellating themselves and instead to say, let's take the where we are now. You know, what that is the sunk cost. That's what's already happened in the past. What we can gain from that in knowledge, what we can gain from that in understanding, yes, that we, that we want to look back in order to look forward. But there's a lot more of, well, where are we now? And how do you do the best from where you are now? Because we can't go back to the water that's already gone under the bridge. We can't redo that. And so I think it's very important 
again, for parents to get support. I mean, I, I work with a lot of families where they're just in family therapy, but I work with a lot of families where individuals have their own therapists and then they come together for the family piece. And sometimes it's really about supporting the couple. Sometimes it's about really thinking who, who are the other people we can rely on. You know, we're, we're all of us wired to support each other. There's lots of research showing that altruistic behavior, doing things for other people, uh, gives you a much longer lasting sense of good and, and wellness than doing something for yourself. So we're probably doing somebody a favor by asking them if they can help us out. We're, we're so designed to think that we have to do everything ourselves and just struggle with it and that nobody else wants to hear what's going on. I don't think that's true. I just actually just simply don't think that's true. And I think that if we reach out to people in a way that is accessible for them, it doesn't suddenly become this burden and we're not, you know, also asking them what's going on in their lives. I think that, that there's a lot more support out there than most of us access. I think that we don't want to burden other people with it. And so we, we tend to sort of turn in on ourselves. And I don't think that does us any good. We tend to give up all the things that are our best uh, self-care. First thing we do is we give up, you know, exercise and give up, you know, healthy eating and we give up seeing, you know, our friends because we think I've just got to focus on this problem and I'm, I must sacrifice everything to that. Well, it's not true. I mean, you look at, you look at the, you know, the airline instructions, you know, you must put the oxygen on yourself before you put it on your child. So I think parents need to talk to other parents, get professional help, make sure they take walks out in the sunshine, whatever it is that they need to do because we are parents for the rest of our lives and, you know, our children could be well into their adults as we you know, become parents, become grandparents. We want to stay connected in, in as positive way as possible. I completely agree with that. And actually some of my biggest confidants in my life have been actually friends of my parents who I've just almost treated as sort of surrogate parents. And, and as you say, you extract different things from different people and they give you you know, they give you different things. I think it's Jay Shetty who talks about the sort of four pillars of of what a person kind of, you know, can give you, whether it's consistency, care, companionship. And, you know, you do it. It's extraordinary how having that older influence as well is, I think, invaluable. I've certainly found a lot of comfort in just having friends of all generations. And I, I kind of would urge anyone who does struggle from mental health issues to, yeah, like you said, draw on the community because it, you know, it does. It takes a village. Yeah. To raise a person yeah. and we tend to focus on the nuclear family when in fact a lot of support can be gleaned from outside of that unit. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's part of that sort of trying to bust that sense of shame around things where, you know, it's wonderful to see that people are speaking out about mental health struggles that they've had because it does, you know, in some way begin to erode the stigma. But I think that parents sit with it too. They think that their children in some way reflect on them both positively and negatively. And it's like, I don't, you know, I think the best people are not literally, are not out there judging. So let them in and share with them. And, you know, one's always then um, amazed. And I can tell you from, from my side as being, you know, both a parent and I'm a sibling and I'm a daughter, but also a clinician, you see people coming in with one veneer. And then as the story unfolds, you see all the things that they've been through and you would never know that from the outside. And part of the work that I do is not saying, you know, you have to bear yourself open to absolutely everybody to know your business. Obviously, that's not, a lot of people are not open to that. But to think about who it is you can 
just draw in in some way and let them know what's going on for you and let them know what's going on for your family, whether it's your children or your parents or whoever it is that, that's struggling. But also for yourself, I think very often we're like, well, it's really difficult for them. You know, I'm the one that needs to be strong. No, we all need help. There's always a moment when we need help. And there's always a moment that we can be the one that's helpful to someone else. Just like you are now, you're turning your experience where you've struggled into this podcast, which is there to support others and there to, to give information to others and to hopefully to help others. And I think that we all do that in our, in our lives if we're allowed to and if we give other people the opportunity to. Oh, well, Ariadne, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And there's just so much in that conversation. Just so, so grateful to you for taking the time today. Well, Pandora, it's wonderful to speak with you. I'm so thrilled that you're doing this. So thank you for giving me the opportunity and congratulations on the work you're doing. And it's lovely to, to see you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing 101. Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text SHOUT to 85258. Thank you.